Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting from White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. So here at SMP, we like to discuss the intersections of science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of the SMP Facebook group, you need to look us up and you need to join in on the conversation. It's a really great place to get vetted information and to get questions answered. In fact, if you pose a question to the SMP Facebook group, it might even be answered here on this very podcast. Now, before we get into today's episode, I have a little housekeeping. First, we've just published a new Montessori white paper on our website at www.whitepaperpress.us. This paper is entitled, Does Screen Media Wire Young Children's Brains for Inattention? It's the first paper to volume four, which focuses on technology's impact on development and education. A very hot topic. If you're a school or training center subscriber, this paper is available now for download in both PDF and Word formats, so you can share it with your communities. If you're an individual subscriber, you can't download the paper, but you can, of course, read it along with all of our other white papers directly on our blog. And a big thank you to all of our subscribers, as your subscriptions not only support the writing and publishing of the Montessori White Papers, but they also help support this podcast and work that we publish on sites such as the Huffington Post and Medium. If you're not a subscriber, but you enjoy our SMP podcast, you might want to consider at least an individual subscription to our site. It's only $4.95 a month. Okay, enough of that. So about today's episode... You're about to hear a conversation with one of my favorite Montessorians, Margaret Whitley. Margaret is just finishing up as the executive director of Montessori Academy of London in Ontario, and she's been a Montessorian for 50 years, so she's had a lot of opportunity to experience Montessori in a wide variety of roles. And today she shares with us her insights from these various roles, insights from which Montessori parents, teachers, and administrators can definitely benefit. Okay, really quick before we get into the conversation, I just have a quick apology. So I have a bird and I record this podcast in my home, which means in this particular podcast, you can actually really hear my bird. I'm so sorry. I tried to remove her from my audio and I wasn't able to do it. Now, of course, maybe if I hadn't mentioned it, you might not have noticed. And maybe now that I have mentioned it, It's the only thing you're going to hear. Either way, I'm just really sorry. Okay, now for the conversation. Okay, so I've provided you with an intro, and now what I'd like for you to do is actually to share with our listeners what you would like them to know about you. Sure. I'd like them to know that I've had the opportunity to be in Montessori for over 50 years. And as a result of that, I have lots of different Montessori aspects to my journey that I hope are informative for others to hear. So I know that there are quite a few, actually, Montessori teachers who are Montessori children themselves, Mm -hmm. but many of them are not, or were not Montessori children, I should say. So what I'm kind of curious about is your experience as a student and how you think that that might have shaped your perception of the world or shaped who you are now or influenced who you are now. Absolutely. So I go back to something that just 
keeps popping into my head 50 years later, and that is doing the puzzle map work in my CASA classroom, where I would hold different countries in the palm of my hand. And to this day, it still resonates that concrete image of we can be global citizens, we can very much engage with each other globally, and I know indirectly that has influenced my whole life. Okay, I'm a little stunned here because you you actually remember holding those pieces in your hand. You remember? I don't remember my preschool experience at all. I can tell you where the maps were in my classroom. This is incredible because the people I have met who were Montessori children, they talk about this. This is a common thing where they they have very clear memories from their preschool experience. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, Laura. You will hear this time and time again. Um, And it might be the beads. It might be the spindle box. It might be the practical life work. It might be some of the more advanced work they move into in elementary, but particularly the preschool during that time of sensorial exploration. I think we have the potential to have very strong, powerful experiences. And one of the gifts I feel I got from Montessori is I had that opportunity um, to have those experiences. So it's interesting that you talk about also specifically holding the puzzle pieces and seeing yourself as like a a global citizen. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the cosmic education of the elementary does an amazing job of weaving a systems perspective of the world for the children. And Montessori teachers will talk about how that perspective starts from birth mm-hmm. with the curriculum as well. I think in a different way because you're dealing with a different mind and it's much more in a sensorial way. So it's interesting to hear you talk about how that perspective was already starting for you. Where It wasn't just about you, but you were seeing yourself as part of something that was bigger than you. And I think even going back to the Kazakh classroom experience, and I am fortunate because a lot of these things have been reinforced since because I've continued to be in Montessori, but there was a perspective even in the classroom that I still feel viscerally today that our classroom also was this being, this whole being that functioned and moved and had dynamic characteristics all the time. So it was almost like a microcosm of as what you talk about moves into the cosmic education aspect of the elementary program. Right. It's that preparation. Right. It's that experience, mm-hmm. that day-to-day interactions, actual experience. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I know. I love Montessori. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. So, so right now, you're finishing up. I am. Your last year. So uh, I'll, I'll briefly summarize my journey. I actually left Montessori when I was seven because that was as far as the school went many years ago and went into conventional education. And because my parents were involved in starting the school, my mother ran the school, I did keep a connection, obviously, with the school through them indirectly. But I always said, oh, I'd never be a Montessori teacher. I'd never do anything to do with Montessori because that's what your parents do. So you don't do what your parents do, right? Right. But, you know, having said that, going through education was always comparing my education or education opportunities through the Montessori lens. You know, why are we doing it this way? Why couldn't we do it that way? Why aren't they giving us more credit for what we can do and and things like that? So there was that constant comparison being made probably unconsciously a lot of times, but being made. And then going through university and in college, I ended up deciding I did want to become a teacher. And at at that point, it was like the only type of teacher I could be as a Montessori teacher because it really works. I had experienced that throughout my life. So 
of course, that's the way I need to do it. So how was your transition? Do you remember how your transition was at age seven? Actually, it was tough at age seven, I will recall. I did go into a small alternative school even at that time. I didn't go into public education. But there was this whole sense of I could do all these things, but that wasn't what was expected on Tuesday morning. You were expected to do what everybody else was doing. And so, again, math for me was something that was constantly, like, I can divide. I can... I can even do some square root stuff. I can do all these things. And what do you mean we're doing a math sheet of addition and subtraction? So I think there was a real disappointment. The biggest reflection I have now looking back on what conventional education was in those days and and still is very much today. I did hear that sentiment echoed by my own children when they transitioned as well into conventional education, having left Montessori many years ago as well. Yeah, it's interesting when my children made that transition this school year, I spent a lot of time with them showing them how to fill out their worksheets, not to do the content of them, but how to look at the worksheet. It was like, it was kind of, I felt like I was teaching them how to be federal employees or something, you know, like here's this form and here's how you consistently need to fill these out. And there's a trick to these forms and just understand how they work and then you're good to go. And it was interesting because conceptually, they have been fine. Mm -hmm. It was just getting them to do things exactly the way that the teacher wanted them to do things. I think for many students, regardless of when they transition from Montessori, it is very much figuring out what are the new rules of this game. Right. And once you figure out those rules, as you said, the foundation is there, the concepts are strong, not just even academically, but socially, emotionally. They are very stable young people And so once that opportunity for those pieces are presented to reveal themselves, they fly. Yeah. They're great. But it is a transition of recognizing what is the game. Yeah, it really is. And that's, that's, but you know, I think they're also what, at least in my experience with my kids, they were willing Mm -hmm. to observe and see what this was like Mm -hmm. and how this was going to work. And, and now they're doing great. Yeah. They have that foundation and now I don't have to. I'm not really involved in their schooling. They get it done and they take care of things. That's because they've been self-educators for years. Yeah. And so that's the other beauty is is for many of them as well. Once they figured out the rules, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they have that auto-education piece down. And right. so they can take care of what needs to be taken care of. I think there is a period for every Montessori student when they transition to something conventional of, well, let's try this out. Let's see how this works and let's see how I can apply actually all the things I have developed and mastered and and how they play out. Right, right. So your mother started the London School, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't Montessori trained. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? So when I was, uh, I, uh, well, when my parents got married, I guess, um, in 1961, my dad was a philosophy law student. So he was doing an undergraduate degree in philosophy as well as studying to be a lawyer. And he came across the work of a gentleman named Thiers Desjardins, who was a French philosopher. And he actually speaks about Maria Montessori. And he speaks about her in terms of, um, I, from what I understand, I haven't studied him myself, but, it, you know, a very Aristotelian approach to education, very grounded in lots of other educators of the 18, 1900s, early 1900s. And he had a high regard for her and her work. 
My father had a high regard for him, so therefore spent time looking up and understanding what is a Montessori approach all about. So when the opportunity came to put his children in a program, and I was the first at three, they found a local little Montessori school in London, London, Ontario, that is, enrolled me, and he joined the board, actually, of that particular school, a parent-run board. And several years later, there was some dissension amongst the board members about how the school was being run and, you know, does this Montessori teacher really know what she's doing? And so there was a group of board members that followed the teacher. And then there was another group that stayed at the school that I had been attending. So the group that followed the teacher, um, my parents were part of that group. And the decision was made, let's start our own little Montessori school following the principles of what the teacher is telling us to do in Montessori. At the time, my mother was was working. She was actually a, a full-time nurse, and she would work nights and run this school during the day, and my dad kept encouraging her because oh um, they both ended up believing so much in Montessori. And you know, it's interesting because that's not necessarily... It's a great story, but it's not necessarily an uncommon one. It's not, and but I think, there, I think the quality of it that's common is the determination to do something that you feel is really authentic for your children. So did she ever uh, become trained? She never became trained, and she always really left the leadership of the school, maybe not the business leadership of it, but the the academic leadership of it to people who were Montessori trained. Yeah. So, you know, forever there were always lead teachers and ultimately a principal that was there, Sharon Keenan, for many years, who had strong Montessori roots and backgrounds and training and left the academic leadership up to them. Yeah, which is exactly the right thing to do. Having been an untrained head of school, it was so important to work with my director of education. So important. And I felt like my job was really to figure out how to to give everybody the support that they Mm -hmm. needed so that their Montessori training could be implemented for the children. It's a balancing act. For sure. And I think she very much used the same principles, Laura. I, I'm not the expert in Montessori, and I need to rely on the experts yeah. to do what's best for the children. Now, over year, over the years, uh, you know, 35 years later, she had a pretty good idea when she'd yeah. walk into a Montessori classroom, hmm, this looks pretty authentic or not. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, you know, she would never take for granted that she 100% knew what it should be. Right. She would always leave that to the to the professionals, right. to the Montessori um, trained people. Absolutely. So let's get back to the present day. <laughs> You're about to make some big changes here. So I am. I, I did end up having the opportunity to become a Montessori trained elementary teacher and work in a Montessori school, not the one that I went to as a child for a couple of years outside of Toronto, and ended up going back to the school that I started out in in 1988, I guess, to start a middle school program and did that and ended up moving into administration and taking over the leadership of the school 13 years ago, 14 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. And now I'm coming to the end of that stage in my journey. And and it's... Uh, pretty daunting. It's very bittersweet, um, but it's also pretty exciting because I hope to go off in other directions in the Montessori world. Can you tell us a little bit about those directions? Well, I think the first first area I'm going to focus on is uh, I'm going back to school. I think Montessori also instilled in me a, a love of learning, and that's pretty common characteristic you hear about Montessori students as well. And so I've always wanted to go back and do a master's degree. For years, I thought I'd probably do it in educational leadership. 
but I've always really wanted to develop my writing further. And I then I thought, well, maybe I could marry the two. Marry, maybe I could marry writing and, and furthering my, my writing skills with also telling the world a little bit more about my Montessori journey and the journey of others through Montessori. Mm -hmm. So I'm going back to do uh, MFA, uh, Masters of Fine Arts in Creative Nonfiction Writing, starting in August at University of Kings at Dalhousie in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a two-year program to write a book. That's so exciting. And your book, the focus is on your your experience, your journey. Is that right? Um, yes, it is. It's going to be looking at Montessori through many lenses and yeah. many of the lenses I've had the opportunity to have, but also to hopefully tie in other people who have who have had similar experiences. So if it's the lens, you know, of being a Montessori student or the lens of being a Montessori teacher or the lens of being a Montessori parent, right? Um, you know, or the lens of even being a Montessori teacher trainer, because I did have the opportunity to work at the training institute in Toronto, one of the training institutes for about five or six years. And so to kind of give my story of those perspectives to help um, shed light on how it feels yeah. to be in all those different spots yeah. in the Montessori world. You must have then felt a need as you were getting ready for this journey to sort of prepare not just yourself, but the school. Mm -hmm. Your mother ran the school before, and then you ran the school, and now someone else is going to run the school. What did you feel that you needed to do to prepare? You know, and I think this is a good question for because this is something heads always have to think about. Even in my limited time as a head of school, I was only ahead mm -hmm. for seven years. I, I would think I'm not going to do this for 25 years, and I'm going to at some point, you know, need to put a succession plan mm -hmm. into place. Is there a little bit that you can share with us about that? Sure. I think I've always been of the mindset that Montessori truly calls us to help develop capacity in people, capacity in children, capacity in others, and to, uh, as much as it's not uncommon in Montessori for us to want to control things, I think we have to constantly fight against that and figure out ways that we can actually create independence in everything we do. So that is the heart of soul of what we do for our children. We should be doing that for our schools and for our faculty and not creating a dependency on any single person. It happened when my mom stepped, stepped down 13 years ago. It actually was not a, a completely planned success, succession. I think there was always an intent that someday I would take over the school. But at the time, she actually became suddenly ill. And so I was forced to um, fairly quickly figure out, okay, can I do this? Can I step into this role? And um, have I done all the preparatory work to do so? Mm -hmm. And I did. Um, but looking back on it, the minute that happened, I think one of the very first things I thought to myself is I never ideally want the school to be in a position where they weren't prepared for succession to happen. Mm. And so the first couple of years of being in the role of leadership, there was very much an examination, first of all, a, a self-examination, self-reflection. What are the think pieces that I need to pull together for the school? If people have worked so hard for this amazing legacy, why would you do anything to make it fragile? and not stable. So what are those pieces you need to put together? And I think the first thing I realized is the school was very dependent on the leadership of one or two people and that needed to change. Yeah. So um, I gathered together a group of people in 2008 and we spent about a year and a half looking at opportunities for the future direction of the school and, and truly examining what all those opportunities could be. Do you go the not-for-profit route? Do you stay at that point where it was a 
considered in Canada a sole proprietorship. Mm -hmm. So his mother, although my mother always joked it was never for profit because (laughs) there was never any money and it always went back into the school when there was. You know, the idea was corporately, that was how it was set up. And so we examined that very closely. Was that a direction that the school should maintain or should we take a different direction? The conclusion of that group, and it was a group of external people, internal people, people who had corporate experiences, people who had academic experiences. But the conclusion of that group was the school really needed to take the not-for-profit charitable status direction. Mm. And so we did what my mother always said she never would do, and that is set up a board (laughs) to help guide the school and, you know, steer the the strategic leadership of the school. But I think we had a really unique situation in the sense that we had the opportunity to look at a whole lot of structures of school boards and other board of governors as well, and how do they function and how can you create one that functions in a very strategic, high-level way and not in an operational way. Mm -hmm. And so... When we did that, we created bylaws and governance structures that actually created a strong distance from the day-to-day operations of the school. So the present status of the board to this day is that less than one-third of the board members can be present parents. Many of them are alumni parents or alumni or even community members. So we do have a profile board where we've brought in people with legal background, marketing background, finance, human resources to help guide the school, but they very much maintain a a governance structure that is strategic. You're really lucky to be able to do that, but I think also because you you were... You were already an institution Mm -hmm. at that point. You know, I think a lot of schools... Maybe they're a sole proprietorship for a year or two, and then they decide that they want to fundraise, and then they become a nonprofit for the purpose of fundraising, and then they have to pull parents to be on the board, and then that turns into a whole thing. And then trying to actually change the composition of the board to including outside community members, people with a variety of expertise and that kind of thing, it's really can be very, very difficult. So it's so great that you were able to to do that mm-hmm. and that you were able to really also take the time to examine things and determine, you know, what was going to be the best legal status and at the same time, you know, how you wanted that board to look. I think you make an excellent point, Laura. We were in a, well, we were and still are in a bit of a unique position compared to a lot of schools because we were established. We had a a strong reputation in the city. You know, there's still parts of that that, you know, you're considered the elite school, you're considered other things that go with that. But at the same time, I think it enabled us to bring into the organization supporters without them being um, directly involved day to day. And talking to schools today and, and advising them towards that direction, I realized there is a period of time that you have to get to before you can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have almost 30 years of alumni. Yeah. So that alone is, that a, alone. is, is, a, is a pool of people that you can draw on but it also makes me think maybe there's things that when when schools are setting up, they can be thoughtful about the long term. They can be thoughtful about how are we going to, if we're going to set up a not-for-profit board governed govern school, how can we do it in a way that it does evolve to something like what we were able to get to and not find themselves 30 years later still dealing with potentially 
a parent-run board of parents who are sitting on the board because they want to have some say in who's their child's teacher is. Right, right. And so I think the bottom line is, is this is all about looking at the long term. And that's what Montessori is too. I often say to parents, we're not in this work for the short game. Right. We're in this for the long game and every aspect of running the school needs to be done in the same way. That's right. That is exactly right. So you must feel really good then about being able to make this transition now and feeling like the school is now, it stands on its own and it will be there and it will continue to serve children and it, it doesn't rely on you. Absolutely. I it, it it sometimes brings tears to my eyes thinking about it and thinking yeah. about the fact the fact that it's grown up. Yeah. It's it's on its own plane. Yeah. You know, the, it's I, I think it's kind of like an adolescent now. It's <laughs> going on to the third plane of development. You know, it can it certainly can function independent of me, and that is a delight and also very comforting. Yeah. That you know that a lot of the work that goes into doing these things have helped um, made it stable. I also think. It's time for a new head. It's time for new leadership. I think we can overstay our welcome sometimes in these roles and hang on to them longer than is really what's best for any living being or organization. Um, I don't want my 25-year-old sleeping on my couch, and nor do I want the school (laughs) knocking on my door. (laughs) In the middle of the night, Exactly. (laughs) So... But but also, I you know things are changing today. Parents are are now a whole lot younger than I am, than I was when I started this out many years ago. And I just I think the school really is ready for some new ideas, some fresh leadership, and maybe even a slightly different direction, but on a really strong foundation that's based completely on Montessori. Personally, I think it's really good when you're leading an organization to see yourself as part of the process of that organization, part of the growth of that. And whatever your part in that process is, that's an important part. And everybody's part is important in that process, right? But but that also means that that's just your part. And then the organization needs something that's different. And so your part is done. And now it's someone else's turn to come in and do their part to to cultivate it and to help it grow. Absolutely. Again, it's sort of that concept of being part, that yeah. little Piece yes. and as as part of the whole. Yeah. Um, I for many years have said at our grade eight graduation to the students when they leave the school that you know we will always be a part of them, but they will always be a part of us. Yeah. And so I do know and take some solace in the fact that there's there is going to be a little part of me left back. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there'll be, you know, things that people will, you know, say, oh my gosh, you know, if Margaret was here, it would be, you know, she'd ask us to do this or, or whatever, or, or she, this was part of some of the work she did. But it is that opportunity to collaborate and to build on what each one of us do in this world that I think um, yeah. brings so much potential for the world. Yeah. And if we if we keep thinking we can do it ourselves or or thinking that, you know, there is this capacity of singularity that is going to solve the problem, mm-hmm. I think that's where we we go awry. Yeah, no, for sure. I absolutely. And uh, I mean, frankly, too, I always feel good leadership means knowing that you can't do everything because you don't know everything. And collaboration is exciting because people bring information and knowledge and expertise to the table that you don't have. And again, it reflects what we're trying to 
emulate in the classroom. I mean, for me in Montessori, it's always asking the question every single morning, am I walking the talk in my leadership of exactly what I would ask of the students, of exactly what I would ask of our faculty, of exactly what I'd ask the person, you know, answering the phone at the front desk, yeah. like that we have to function true to our principles in Montessori mm-hmm. and very much reflective of what the good in Montessori is. Right. You know, I've heard people say to me over the years, well, you know, they got to get out of Montessori sooner or later because that's sort of this unrealistic bubble that they live in. And I think there's two points to that. First of all, actually, Montessori is probably a lot more realistic to or close to real life than conventional education. Uh, uh, yeah, conventional education is a bubble. That's not the way life is structured. Exactly. Society is structured like that. The, the bubble's incorrect. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, as to what the bubble is. But the other thing is, I do think about maybe the bubble notion, and that is, why would we not want our children and our young people to experience the most opportunity to see the best in life yeah. rather than the worst. Yeah. Because the longer they have those opportunities, the more that becomes part of their own personal fabric. Right. And they themselves carry that with them throughout their life. Well, right. What ends up happening too with the idea of the bubble is that people then think that Montessori is some sort of utopia, which is not true. And I actually, I'm going to write a paper about this because it just, I've heard that so many times from parents, but it, so Montessori classrooms are not a utopia. Conflict still exists. And I, I would always find it interesting when parents would be surprised that there would be conflict. And it's like, well, they're human. So conflict will happen. The difference is in how it's handled in a Montessori environment. That's a difference. It's not whether or not it occurs because it's going to occur. It's how it's handled. And so the children get so much opportunity to practice handling conflicts in an effective, appropriate, self-regulatory way. Like everything else in Montessori. Yes. And that is the beauty of it, that they are living a real microcosm of life every single day in a Montessori classroom. As you said, they have conflict, they have problem, other types of problem solving, they're critically thinking, they're, they're using their imagination to, to also solve problems, they're, they're practicing skills that they're mastering and things like that. Yeah. So it is real life and that is the beauty of Montessori and, and completely the misnomer or one of the misnomers that people think out there about Montessori. Yes, yes, very much so. We have to change that. So I'll write something, and then you write something. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a, a chapter of mine, oh, too. Good. <laughs> that's good. The lens of the misnomers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think, too, what happens is that those misnomers, they become scripts. Yeah. They're scripts that are repeated again and again. And intuitively, they kind of make sense. But when they're examined, you realize they actually don't make any sense. And of course, that's what I'm always about. I love examining what we typically don't examine. Like with conventional education, in my doctorate program, nobody questioned the framework. That was just a given, that this is just how we do it. But we always need to examine these things, you know? So are the misnomers right? Are the, is the framework right? Is there a way, you know, so when you were talking about making your transition into conventional education and all the while going, but why does it have to be this way? Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, yeah, that's exactly what we want our children to do. We want our children to ask, well, Why? Is there a better way of doing this? And I would say when we have our alumni panel at the school, that also is probably the most common 
comment that comes back is a disappointment in their new experience in education or even just their new experiences in life. And then the next step of questioning why can't it be different and how can we do that? Right. Which is exciting because I think in each person who's gone through a Montessori, in their own way, they are actually, again, consciously or unconsciously asking the question, how can I do something a little bit different to actually make the world a better place? Yeah. And I know that sounds very idealistic, but I think it is at the heart of what a lot of Montessori, um, former Montessori students feel. Yeah. I had the opportunity to meet up with one of my alumni who's now in her early 40s a couple weeks ago in in Calgary, and she has put her three children, well, her two, she's about to put her third in Montessori in Calgary. And first thing I said to her is, Christy, why? Like, what what was it that compelled you? I mean, I was thrilled to hear that's what she was doing, but what was it that compelled you to put your children in Montessori? And she said, well, first of all, I had no choice. She said, the minute I transitioned into conventional education, I had this moment of, oh my gosh, the rest of the students in this math class have no understanding of why we do these things. Right. And she said, having somebody who, you know, continued my own education then through high school and university and going on to being becoming an engineer, she said, I just had to give my children that understanding of how the world works, not just to follow the rules. Yeah. And so I, it was, you know, it was delightful to hear her say that, but I have heard that repeated over and over again. Well, you know, it's so interesting because we recently at, at my children's school, at their public middle school, we went to their open house. And my daughter's teacher, she she kept saying, Reese is such an individual thinker. She'll look at an assignment and she'll think of it of, of an innovative way to do it. And the other children don't do that. And she's been teaching for like 35 years in public conventional education. And she said, conventional education is about compliance. And then she looked at Reese and she goes, but you, you came from a different educational system that cultivated your individual creative thinking. Do you have any idea how great that is? And it's interesting to see that for somebody who devoted her life to conventional education, to be able to see the difference. I think part of her was kind of sad. Mm -hmm. And I think the sad thing about Montessori is a lot of times we don't, well, first of all, we don't often recognize that when we're in the midst of it, whether we're the parents or the teachers or the students. We don't recognize what Montessori is giving us. And sometimes we don't recognize it because when we're in the midst of it, we also can't understand that depth of experience. You sort of have to step out of it to see that. To reflect too, yeah. But sometimes it also doesn't even come to the fore when people haven't taken the opportunity later on to examine or ask those questions and truly understand what Montessori has given them. Yeah. And I think this is a critically important thing for Montessori parents, but also for people who are going into Montessori teacher training. Because I think there is a notion that, oh, the material's really cool. This is great, you know, that we can teach, you know, history through timelines or we can teach organic chemistry, you know, through interesting material. Like there's, the material is seductive for many people and 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 it becomes the end all and be all for many people in teacher training. But there's a much deeper aspect to Montessori beyond the material. The material is just the means yeah. to get there and... Many teachers, even after years of teaching, still stay at that superficial level of understanding what Montessori has to offer 
children and has to offer themselves. So when I get to the chapter on, on Montessori teacher training, I really would like to help find a way to help people in training really appreciate what they're embarking on. That's interesting because it's like viewing it as just just a content delivery system mm-hmm. as opposed to really understanding the complexity and the richness, which never fails to surprise me. You know, For years now, and I always used to say, is this going to be the year where I'm like, meh, Montessori? No, I'll learn something new or I'll read something that she wrote about. And I'll think, oh my God, this is incredible. And it's just so rich. And it is so rich. And you're, and you're right, Laura. I mean, we are in this, um, in some ways, the age of Montessori because there is so much research now that continues to come out that supports what we do in Montessori and have been doing for years and years and years. Just this morning, I was reading uh, in, in a scientific uh, magazine about preschool and, you know, the, the new ways and the ways we need to be approaching preschool, age-old argument. Essentially, what they're arguing for is, is a Montessori approach. Right. They're, they're arguing for, you know, giving children guidance and direction, but also freedom of choice, giving them some scaffolding and helping to make decisions, but at the same time, helping them to make mistakes, calling work play and play work. I mean, again, the the, the references just come up over and over again. Yeah. And I mean, the point of the article was also to say we need to invest uh, much more significantly in preschool education, which I'm sure um, all of us in education would would argue, but it's about the kind of preschool education. Right. And Montessori is the answer to what everything is being, or everyone is saying out there in research yeah. about how quality preschool education should look. Yeah. But they act like it's new and it's not. That's why I do what I do. And that's also the why I get sort of frustrated is because you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Mm. It's already here. People have been doing this. It's Montessori. Even just forget the name. Just look at what they're Mm -hmm. doing. Call it self-regulated learning. Call it this. Call it that. We're already doing it. And the research is there. And the research is there. And so, and then also when they're looking at at sort of, you know, oh, well, it should just be play for young children and no academics because that's too much pressure. Again, it's it's about how you do it. Mm -hmm. Four-year-old children love to practice their cursive. They take pride in it. No one's forcing them to do it. They want to learn. They want to engage in these things. They want to do important, purposeful work. Give them opportunities to do it. Or learn all the countries of the world. Or learn all the countries of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then the flags and the capitals and <laughs> everything else that goes with it. Yeah. And they feel such a, I mean, you know, we talked today about self-esteem and about, you know, children having you know, confidence. When you give children those opportunities to know that they can master those things given the right guidance and the right freedoms to do it, that's going to build their self-esteem and confidence. That's right. It's, I can do it myself, that's which right. is what Maria, Dr. Maria Montessori talked about all the time, is the capacity of children. And recognizing, as she said, and I can never remember how the quote goes exactly, but that child who's standing before you who's not yet there. They have that ability, so we just have to give them the framework to develop those opportunities. Exactly. Is there anything else that you want parents to know before we end here? There's a couple things for parents. I think the first thing is most parents today are still coming from a conventional educational background themselves. 
So if they want to make the commitment to Montessori, and I'd love to think everybody would, but there has to be an openness to how Montessori does it. And in the absence of that openness, there's this constant tendency to say, oh, well, then how come you're not quite doing it this way? Or how come you're not offering, you know, the X, Y, Z additional extracurricular things? Because, you know, that's, that's what I did, or that's what helps me, helped me be who I am today. It's a mind shift. And parents have to be open to that mind shift, I think, for them to appreciate, first and foremost, what their children are going to benefit from. And then second of all, for them to do as much as they can to support it. Yeah. I think the best Montessori happens when it's being as as much as possible supported at home as it is at school. And I have always said, you know, home is not school and school's not home. Our homes are not an environment exclusively prepared for children, for example. There's there's a family that lives there and we have big beds and little beds and everything else. But there also needs to be a recognition that children are part of our family. They're not guests in our household either. They have responsibilities. They have expectations. They have capacity, just like every other member of the family. And so the more we can do that as parents, I think the more our children will actually benefit from that Montessori experience. Um, so I think those are two pretty important things, being consistent as you can, as much as you can at home and also being open to what Montessori has to offer your yeah, child. I absolutely agree 100%. That perception shift takes time. Mm-hmm. And I used to try to tell parents this when they would come into the school, you're going to be going through a perception shift. It's going to take time. And you are going to ask questions that are going to come through the lens of conventional education. But ask the questions. Just keep asking just for clarification. Because what will happen over time is that the shift, it's like a, a circle, right? You're, so a little sliver of it first, Montessori, and then the rest of it's conventional education. And eventually that sliver turns into the entire circle, but that takes time. Absolutely. And I think it also goes back to that other piece that I mentioned a few minutes ago, is that Montessori is also in it for the long haul. It's not about what comes home in your child's backpack at the end of every week. It's not about sort of those instantaneous... I mean, we are in a society of instantaneous gratification. So we're a little bit countercultural in that way. And people, parents again, and staff need to be prepared for that. But if you're open to that as well, and you are open to the magic of what can come much later on because of those Montessori experiences... I think it will truly be an amazing opportunity for everybody, not just the children, but everybody who's part of that journey. Yeah, that's really true. I think that's real. That's such a good point, Margaret, because just speaking as a parent, I would have times when I was really nervous. I'd get nervous, like, well, why is my son washing tables every time I go into the classroom? It drives me crazy. Oh, there he is washing a table again. That's really great. Okay, you're five. Like, why are you washing this table? Until one day his teacher just said, you need to back off. You need to just stop worrying about this. And I was just like, okay, well, whatever. And I just went home and I thought, okay, she's right. I need to back off. And I told my husband, well, he's not going to Harvard. So, you know, it's, but it's okay. It's fine. (laughs) And yeah, he washed tables and then he goes up to the elementary and went through this incredible blossoming. And then, you know, it just, it was really just incredible. But the more time that I spent there, I realized this is where I just need to trust. Not trust, uh, it's not a blind trust. It's almost like I need to trust my child. Mm -hmm. If he's not doing things on my timeline, well, that's my timeline. 
but I need to I need to trust him. And there's something about that that is so freeing as a parent, actually. The more that you can embody that trust so, so that you can give them that space and be there to guide them, but mm. not have to control them, that really gives them to space the space to self-differentiate and, and self-construct. But it also alleviates much of my anxiety as well. I'm glad you brought up that word trust, Laura, because that was another one I was thinking of earlier. And it is that freeing that the trust gives you, first of all, but also it is human nature sometimes to not and to acknowledge that. And I was chuckling in my head when you were you know, talking about the washing tables, because I was that same mother, um, (laughs) not washing tables. And and my son was a tiny bit older and it's like, oh my God, he's never going to learn to spell. What am I going to do? And, you know, and and I was, I'd be the one, you know, okay, I've been trained. I'm the head of school now. And and I'd be the one going to them saying, okay, like, what what can you do about the spelling program? (laughs) Because I'm not sure this is working. It may be working for every other child, but it's not working for him. And to this day, it's it's a joke because I still get emails where, you know, there is the wrong there in the email. But he's a happy, highly successful civil engineer, and he's probably was one of the best writers in his civil engineering program. So there you go. Yeah. I needed the same medicine. Yeah. I needed to trust, and I knew enough to trust. But at the same time, it was that human nature to say, well, are you sure? Yeah. Is it going to work? Yeah. And it does. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love that. With all of your training, <laughs> you still have that same anxiety. I know with my training as a marriage and family therapist and all my training in child development, I was still freaking out. <laughs> yeah, it's just It's human different when it's your part. own children, too. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it is very, no matter how rational... You can be, you know, about education and children and child development and all these things when it's your child. And I've always held that in my heart, too, when I'm talking to parents. When it's your child, it's deeply personal. It is. And you do want to find the way to keep holding on to that deeply personal side of it, but at the same time, be a little more rational. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? That's how (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And, you know, this is, again, um, something I'm going to have to relearn and practice even more as my children head deeper into their adolescent years. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) It's like cosmic education. It just keeps coming back. It does. does. At a higher level. Yes. (laughs) The challenges are more sophisticated, but they're the same. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and th- that's what we're we're heading into now. And as I, the more I start to realize that, I'm like, oh, okay, I just have to, I gotta just back to that trust thing. But Montessori children are delightful. They are. I love seeing my old students. I'm, in fact, I'm going to a dance recital for one of them at oh, her great. high school. She's a junior in high school this weekend. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Well, I think that also speaks to the relationship that they develop with yeah. us in Montessori. I'm on Facebook with my, you know, 400 alumni. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so great. And yeah. they, do, they do make a point of constantly reaching out. Actually, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my uh, alumni, uh, Alex Little, just sent me, he's a, a pediatrician with three children, and just sent me his first children's book that he'd published. Oh, wow. Called The Ant and the Eagle. And he attributes so much of who he is today to Montessori. Oh, I love that. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us today. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I love talking to you. I love hearing your wisdom your, about your experiences. And I love the way you think about things. And thank you so much for sharing. Well, and, thank you, Laura. Um, it's a delight. 
there's always so much to talk about when it comes to Montessori. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we look forward to your book. Stay tuned.